All right, if you'll turn with me, please, to John chapter 3. We're spending time here because this is the pinnacle. This is the uh, apex of all of Scripture. And it is a summary of all of Scripture according to Ian Paisley. It is the Gospel in miniature according to Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and we are now examining the view from Salvation's Summit. There is, uh, there is so much to see from this vantage point. The, this verse that sums up the whole of Scripture of uh, Christ Jesus coming into the world as our Redeemer, giving His life so that we may not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, now, we started a couple weeks back, and I given an outline just for uh, verses 16 through 21. And I want to just go over that again because this will help you to see where we are. I, we preached, I preached that all in one message. It was a long one, I think 57 minutes. And then I said we'd take time in the subsequent messages to uh, look at the concepts one by one or two by two. So uh, the, first, uh, the first part of that outline was God's love, which is found in the very first part of verse 16. For God so loved the world. Um, and that is the reason for redemption. The whole plan, the whole um, motivation, the whole source of everything, but especially of salvation, is in God himself and his love for us, which is um, then expressed in God's gift, which is the ransom for redemption. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. Um, it is that ransom that we have heard about, that these songs have preached to us. Um, you, can, you cannot consider God's love without God's gift, because this is how God's love was demonstrated, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His Son as a ransom for us. So that's God's gift um, that He gave his only begotten Son. Then there is God's people. And this is what we're going to work, we're going to be focusing on today. God's people. That whoever believes. And I said that that is one way that you may, um, it's another label we could put on the church. The church would be whoever believes, or more literally in the Greek, all the believing ones. All the believing ones. The word whosoever or whoever. That does not exist in the original text. So it is those who believe, present, or uh, sorry, the tense there is eris, which means it is a continuing action. It is not those who said the sinner's prayer, or, or those who, had, who, who asked Jesus into their heart at one point or another, but those who believe. Ongoing, continuous action. And by the way, Lest you worry that your faith may your faith may wane and you may be weak at some time and that you can truly believe and then truly not believe. If indeed it is saving faith, you will continue to believe because it is a God initiated faith. Alright, and then 
Um, well, just to put this message in context, I'll look at the rest of them that we, that we uh, studied in brief. Uh, and then there is God's life shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the result of redemption. It is something that is guaranteed to everyone who believes. Now, we, it, a lot hinges on what it means to believe and what a believer actually is. Uh, because, you know, we see people start off and then they seem to fall away. And we wonder, well... Is that person, is there something wrong with this scripture that says, whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life? Is it then up to us to maintain our belief? And what if we don't? Okay, so the, God's life is a result. God's purpose then um, is, pardon, pardon me, I got them all mixed up here. Anyway, then there's God's purpose, and then there's God's justice, which we find where this is the judgment, where God makes a judgment upon those who reject the message. And then there is God's light, which is the revelation of redemption. Um, and John talks about how those who do good come into the light, and but those who do evil, they hate the light. They don't come into the light because they're, they fear that their wicked deeds will be exposed. Well, one of the marks of a true believer is that we run to the light, or maybe we sheepishly crawl into the light, but we know that our hope is there. It is in the truth of God's Word. The light shines in the darkness, and a true believer is not concerned about what it might be revealed because they know that Christ has paid for that and he has given us the assurance whoever whoever that uh, pardon me let me just think of the verse here um, it skipped my mind someone's first John 1 9 if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so today we're going to be asking the question, for whom did Christ die? We're looking at the God's people, the recipients of redemption. So exactly who are God's people? And did, did, God, did Christ die for a specific chosen group of people? Or was his death intended for everyone? You could say it this way, did God, did, did Christ die in order to make salvation available to all? Or did he die to actually save people he intended to save? It's a huge question. And there are people who are truly saved who believe both of those things. Another way we could say this is, did Christ die for all without exception or did he die with all without distinction you see there are all kinds of people in this world the two major divisions in scripture are Jews and Greeks 
Scripture is very clear that there is no distinction. When it comes to salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction even between male and female. There's no distinction between bond and free. In this way, Christ died for all. And even in the book of Revelation, we read that Christ um, has been given as a ransom, that he ransomed men for God from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So there is no distinction but you can read the rest of the book of Revelation and it becomes so clear that not everyone is saved. So if indeed Christ did die for everyone and yet so many end up in the lake of fire with the devil and with the Antichrist being tormented forever and ever in hell's flames, if it, they are suffering and if Christ died for them, then he has paid for their sins and they are also paying for their own sins. And Christ has somehow failed in saving. Because, and it all comes down to that person's decision, that person's will. There's a way that some people have expressed this. God has a vote. Satan has a vote. I've got the deciding vote. Well, that seems logical to us. And I bet there's hardly a one here that when they were first saved, the thinking in our heart is, that was a good decision I made to follow Jesus. I'm sure glad that I could, I could see that Jesus was the way to go. Let me tell you something, folks. As you grow in your faith, you understand more and more how little you had to do with it. And eventually, you come to understand that you had absolutely nothing to do with it. Now, interlaced through the Gospel of John are all of the doctrines of grace and if you don't know what those are, you've probably heard certain summaries, um, different big words that are used to describe them. Um, now, you've maybe heard the acronym TULIP. Um, it stands for total depravity. The understanding that man is, there is not one aspect of human nature that is not affected by sin. Even though people may do good things, they are sin that dwells in them, alienates them from God in every aspect. From their reason, to their emotions, to their actions, everything, to their, uh, even to their, to their hopes and dreams. It's all tainted by sin. And therefore, in that state, there is no way back to God because of God's holiness. That's total depravity. Unconditional election or sovereign election. Well, what's that? That God chooses people for himself. That people don't choose God, that God chooses people. And he does it as an act of his free will, not as something that um, there is one more deserving than the other. 
It is something that is God chooses, not on the basis of anything we've done, good or bad, but just because it is His free will, His sovereign will to do so. And this is called grace because it is completely undeserved. There, are, there is no condition attached to it. There is no prerequisite for holy living and seeking after God in order to attain it. <laughs> Scripture is very clear that there is none that seeks after God. And those references that refer to people seeking God, and says when God says, seek my face, he's saying that to people whom he has already sought. Okay? Whether it's the Jewish people or whether it's Christians. We have, as if you are a true believer in Christ, you have the prerogative and the ability to seek God. If you're an unbeliever, until the Lord brings you to life, gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, you can say you're seeking after God, but it is just not so. Your your heart is still dead. But the word that is preached in the gospel of Christ that is so clearly proclaimed in John, it is written that you might believe and that, that Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, the, John has some persuasive arguments. He, he shows the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. But you know, those are not the things that bring a heart to life. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit that pierces to your heart. And when it pierces, it, it does its work. And it's, uh, it'll either slay you or it'll save you. There is, a, there is a, an urgency to receive the word that is preached. Um, then, there's, then there's a big one. This is the one that some people think that they can accept all the rest, but this idea of limited atonement. Or, uh, help me think of someone else, the, the better, definite atonement. That Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, that he died specifically for those that he had always intended to die for. For those whom the Father had already given him. For those who were his from before the foundation of the world. To those he has called to himself because nobody could come unless the, the, unless the Father would draw them to him. Uh, so this idea that the atonement, that the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross... The idea that it might not be for everyone, because after all, it does say, whosoever, at least in the King James, it says that, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Well, that is a fact. Whoever believes in him will not perish. And whoever believes, now, now <laughs> again, we've got to be careful, because there are people who believe, there are demons who believe, and they will perish, or at least they will be punished with Satan and his angels. 
And there are even people who say, Lord, Lord. And there are even people who, uh, who uh, would not challenge one iota of Scripture. And yet they're not saved. Because this belief is a, it's a very specific belief. It is a life-changing, God-initiated belief. Um, and it is a belief that is given to those whom God chooses. It is not something that is manufactured or whipped up in the hearts of people who see the benefits of salvation and will just do anything possible in order to obtain it. I mean, that, you might, you might uh, run to Jesus when you're drawn, but until then, until then, you're lost. Um, all right. And then there's another aspect here. It's irresistible grace. I guess the, the thought that people have in mind is that God is forcibly dragging people into salvation. Well, that's not exactly true, because irresistible, it is not in the sense that nobody ever resists, because people resist all the time. We are born resisting, and many die resisting, and they will suffer eternally, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But the idea is that when God intends to save you, that He will not fail in saving you. And then in the last point is perseverance of the saints, which means God will not fail in keeping you. Those are the doctrines of grace. And I don't see many people flinching here because we've been preaching them. Well, for years, really. But these doctrines are offensive to some when they hear them because they, they seem to um, push in against our autonomy as human beings. And they, they, we... we we feel a little bit devalued that, that we have no say in our salvation. All right. Now, as I said, that was a real rabbit trail, so we might not get very far into the message. But I, I wanted you to have those thoughts and just to have those terms and, and definitions laid out because I see all of these things so clearly presented in the book of John. And not just presented once. If you've read through any of John's writings, you know that he goes in circles. And you know that he hits these points again and again and again. So that you can't miss them. And these, they all tie together in, in such a cohesive whole. That if you believe, that, that, that you see that one is literally hinging upon another and, and connected with the other so that you cannot remove any of these or the whole thing uh, becomes incoherent and meaningless. Um, all right. So let's take a, 
look at the recipients of redemption. And the doctrine of grace that really fits with that one is, um, well, there, there's actually more than one. They're very hard to separate. But the one that I think uh, fits the best is limited atonement or definite atonement. That the believing ones that are presented here in John 3, verse 16, the believing ones, whoever believes, that they are, that, that is not a, that is not an extension to universal, to everyone, saying that this salvation, this salvation is absolutely available to all by an act of their free will. I believe it is not saying that. And if you want to know where that's coming from, I'm going to try to demonstrate that from the rest of the book of John. Um, I think the context enough, the, even the context right here, is enough to give us a strong hint of that. Jesus has just told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and then he, he follows that by saying that as the wind blows where it wants to, and you hear its sound, but you, you don't see where it's coming from or where it goes. In other words, you don't plan to be born. Nicodemus was smart enough to figure out that he couldn't enter back into his mother's womb and be born again. This is a work of God. And that it is something that is initiated by God. And that those who are born again are a very, indeed, a very privileged group of people. That they can rest in God's presence and have assurance that they will not perish but have everlasting life. And you'll see, again, already I'm getting doctrines of grace meshed together because... um, Irresistible grace, limited atonement, they all fit together so closely. John chapter 1, we learned that, um, I'll just go there for a moment. says that um, you're born again not of the will of man nor of blood nor of the flesh but of God in other words it's not something that we initiate at all it is a God thing alright now just a year and a half ago or so when we were kind of going through our troubles at Silver Heights. I had, uh, and we as elders had stated our belief that that there are those who are the Lord's, who are called His elect, that we are, those are people who come to Him 
not out of their own free will, but that the Lord has drawn them, and that that, that there is a there is a limitation, or that there is a distinction that the Lord makes in those that are His and those that are not, and the, the retort, the challenge that came from uh, a prominent leader was. Well, Harley, then can you not preach? Will you not preach that whosoever will may come? Now, I didn't have an answer ready for them, for that question, because it was kind of a loaded question. You know the song, right? Whosoever will, whosoever will, send a proclamation over vale and hill, tis a loving father, calls a wanderer home, whosoever will may come. And actually, I don't even have an objection to that except that the pervading mindset of our whole society is anybody who wants to anybody anybody can just of their own free will decide to come and follow Jesus well I don't believe that and I don't believe scripture teaches it and yet the offer of salvation and the gospel is to go out for everyone. And the, the offer, the presentation of what Christ has done is intended to be presented to all people. But who actually comes? Who actually believes? There's some scriptures that seem to emphasize a universal universality of this appeal. Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon, it says he quotes from the book of Joel. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, it's true that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord with true faith will be saved. But there are those who will say to him, Lord, Lord, they'll say to him on the last day, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not do all of these wonderful works in your name? And Jesus tells them to depart because they are not obeying the Lord. They're not heeding the word of God. Um, So, but there is this universality of this appeal and this encouragement and this almost pleading that people would call upon the name of the Lord. That has been the part of, a part of every gospel presentation, every good gospel presentation in history, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. You want people to call upon the name of the Lord. Because when you call upon the name of the Lord, it is because, and it is because the Lord is drawing you to himself, you will be saved. If it's some sort of motivation that's coming out of your own heart, that's a different thing altogether. Um, Romans 10 verses 11 through 13 says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes, all the believing ones, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is... 
The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches, his riches on all who call on him. All who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, it doesn't matter who you are. If you read that and if you believe it, that instills some hope, doesn't it? All I've got to do is call upon the name of the Lord and I'll be saved. Or I'm so thankful that I call and that I, that I trust in the name of the Lord because Scripture tells me I'm saved. Um, Revelation 22, verse 17. Here's kind of a whosoever will. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Well, there's clearly an act of the will there, isn't there? But you know what? There's a lot of whosoever won't. There's a lot of people who cannot come. And it is only those whom the Spirit is calling. It is only those where the Spirit of God is at work, regenerating the heart that even want to call upon the name of the Lord, and even will, even desire to call upon the name of the Lord. And it is God's work to make that happen. Then there's, uh, this is one I was looking, looking for before, John 1, um, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, now, I'm making the contention that Christ's death, when he died, when he said it is finished, that he already knew exactly who he was dying for. That this had been, this was, this was uh, no random thing where he says, well, I'll give my life and we'll just see how many respond out of their own free will. I'll give my life and every single lost sinner that the Father gives me will come to me. And that, so then this limits the number. It is those specifically called, specifically drawn by the Father that come to Jesus and that believe and that cry out to Him, that look to the Son and live. Let's go, let's go to John chapter 6. I'm just, I know that this is not my normal um, seven alliterated point message, but I just want you to kind of meander with me through the Gospel of John, and we'll go in more or less the, the order that the book goes in. Let's go to John chapter 6. And Jesus is talking about how he has been given as the bread of life. Uh, remember the preceding context is when he feeds the 5,000. And starting at verse 35, it says this, Jesus speaking, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will in no wise cast out. There's two, two doctrines of grace in there, right? All that the Father gives me will come to me, so that's, well maybe three, that's unconditional election, right? Um, that's uh, limited atonement because it's those that are given as opposed to those that are not given him. And then there's uh, perseverance of the saints. I will never cast them out. Okay? Right? There's, there's three right there in, in that one sentence. And it says, For I have come down from heaven, and this is the gift of God, right? Why did Jesus come? He came to atone for sin. It's a reference, even though it's not all said, it's a reference to his death for our sins. I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So the Father and Son, completely united in this. And the Son, obediently coming and giving his life. And then verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So the all that he has been given, all the Father gives to the Son, all that, all essentially, all that will believe. All who will call upon the name of the Lord. The Father is giving these to the Son. And He's not going to lose a single one of them. There's that perseverance of the saints again. And it is the will. This is God's plan. This is His will. It's His desire. It it is what He has intended to do all along. Is to give to the Son... People. And of course, this is not without a price. The Son pays for these with His own blood. And the Son will lose none of them. Not a single one. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son, and believes in Him, should have eternal life. So who are the ones who look to the Son? They are the ones that the Father is giving, has given. That's the past tense verb, has given to the Son. And He's not going to lose any of them. Does that mean that we can't preach? That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Absolutely not. But that means that God is in charge of who looks to Him. It means that God has to bring people who are not only spiritually blind, but spiritually dead to life. He has to give them eyes to see. Even the metaphor of Jesus, or of Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert, and everybody who looks at that serpent living that falls short of what Christ did because those people had necks that they could move and lift their eyes. They were, they were alive and they were physically healed when they looked upon that. But when Jesus died, he died for dead people. He died for people with no capacity to even look to him. But the ones that the Father gives to the Son they can look and live. The ones who are regenerated by His Spirit. 
Go to John chapter 10. We switch now. Jesus is, talking, is now talking about his people as sheep. We read about the sheep in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, does that mean that Christ bore the sin of all? That his death was for all? Let's see what it says here in John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. To him, that is to Jesus, the good shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, notice it says his own sheep. They're special sheep. They're his own sheep. They belong to him. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before for them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. This is something that is characteristic of Jesus' sheep. It is characteristic of all who look to him, of all who believe in him, of all who are given to the Son, is they know his voice. Look at this. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, a beautiful assurance of salvation is when you recognize the voice of God in Scripture. And you recognize also when someone is taking that voice and superimposing their own voice and they're making it say something other than what it says. Those that the Father has given to the Son know the voice of Jesus. They know the shepherd's voice. But you can see here that this is um, it's a specific number. It is not a, a universal thing. And of course, Jesus in John 10 verses 11 is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And I wanted you to see that because I'm not just picking, cherry picking verses. I'm showing you verses that have to do with the atonement, with Christ's death. Who did Christ die for? He died for his sheep. He died for the ones who know his voice. And the very second you recognize his voice is the second that you're born again. When you hear the Word of God and that Word of God penetrates your heart and that Word of God turns your whole world upside down and it shows you your sin in such stark reality that you, that you, that you cringe and you shrink and you crumple under its weight and you cry out to God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you do this on the basis that He has given His Son, that He has allowed Him to be lifted up as the serpent on the pole in the desert, the serpent representing wrath, or the serpent representing sin, the, the, the brass representing wrath, and God's wrath being poured out upon his own son in your place. When that all opens up to you, and you hear it, and you understand it, and your heart is torn, and your heart is, uh, is penetrated by the word of God, that is when you begin to hear the voice of the shepherd. And not everybody hears that voice. This is the point. You can all hear exactly the same message. You can all have you know, adequate intelligence. And some may have heard it a hundred times. And there will be those who believe. 
and there will be those who will not believe. And that belief is a work, the sovereign work of God. And some of you have been in the situation where you've heard the same message perhaps 10, 12 times, and then all of a sudden the Lord, the Lord just, maybe it's a phrase within a sentence, it just, it just gets you. And you believe. And you're born again. Listen to this in uh, John 10, verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, again, that's what the context is, um, the atonement, Jesus' death. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So specifically, he's been talking to... Um, to the, of the Jewish people as the first fruits, the first people he's going to um, bring in. But he said, I've got other sheep, they're not of this fold, but they're my sheep. And look what he's going to do. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. See, even those sheep that are not Jews, even those sheep that are scattered to the ends of the earth, those sheep like us, when we hear his voice, we can't tune it out, and he draws us. We, we know that in him is our security. We know that in him is our salvation. We know that in him, all the promises of God for the redemption of mankind are fulfilled. And we come to him. But again, many... <coughs> can hear the same message, but they don't hear the voice. They don't hear. They are not drawn by this relentless love and grace of God. John 10, verses 25 to 30. Jesus is speaking to, to some unbelievers. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because... Why? Because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say yet. There are those who did not believe because they are not part of his flock. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. Until we believe, we're not part of Jesus' flock either. But... He has chosen us, and He knows that we will be. Okay, the, the the choosing has already been done, and He can speak of us as already His. But there are those who are not part of His flock, that are not chosen graciously to be rescued out of their sin, to be rescued out of their waywardness. Uh, He says, my sheep hear my voice, verse 27, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see how those doctrines are just all jammed in there? 
the security or the perseverance of the saints, how, how nothing can separate us from the love of God, the irresistible grace of being drawn to Him, the sovereign election of the Father um, choosing these as His sheep and giving them to the Son. I've got goosebumps under my shirt here. You can't see them, but they're that big. Um, John 11 50 to 52. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Now, this is, uh, this is Caiaphas, the high priest. And he is speaking out of political expediency. He's, saying, he's trying to explain to people that uh, it's probably not such a bad thing that Jesus dies. It's better to one, that one guy die and preserve the, the whole uh, um, whatever political balance of the region, okay? So, well, listen to this. Not, no, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied about Je- that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered above. So can you see that there is, there is an exclusivity in those who believe? They're scattered above. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to gather them. And he's not gather, gathering them because they are worthy of him. He is gathering them because he is stepping into their wretchedness and redeeming them and bringing them out of slavery to sin and bringing them into his kingdom and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, John 12, 32 to 33. This is why proof texting can be dangerous. It can be very useful if you want to prove your point. But we've seen, I think we've seen sufficient evidence that those believing, that all all of those that are believing in Jesus, that that is... um, that, that those who actually can and do believe, that, that is not, it, it, it is not that Christ's death applies to all, it applies to those. Now listen, John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up, this is Jesus speaking from the earth, and that's talking about his crucifixion. It says, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I'll draw all people to myself. Is it a contradiction? It's not. Because here's the reality of it. Jesus does not save all without exception. He saves all without distinction. In other words, your geography, your race, your uh, your gender, your um, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that is all off the table as far as grace goes. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's only sinners there. And Jesus draws those. But, and please do not judge God for that. He does not draw Everyone. 
He could destroy everyone and be completely just. But in his mercy, he draws some. And he draws them and he makes them his own. He brings them into his fold. He makes them his children. He adopts them as sons and daughters. And the only thing that someone that is in that position, the only response is, why me? And the only answer is, there is no reason other than the gift of God, other than the grace of God. God has sovereignly drawn me. Now, if you're here, you say, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm one of those people. Um, what if I'm not? Well, the question is here, do you hear these words? And do you hear the voice of the shepherd calling? And then the question is, will you come? All the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the invitation is there. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, don't be trying to figure out whether, whether you're called or you're elect or, or, or whether you're one. The question is, can you come and will you come? Will you now respond with faith and repentance? Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Come to Him and be saved. One final scripture here from, from John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Now listen to what Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now this is another hallmark of Christians. They do what Jesus commands them. Not perfectly, but they obey Him because of that new heart. They have love. They love their brothers because Christ loved them. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. Choose me. He's talking to his disciples here. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So this is the work of God. He chooses us. Now if you have assurance of salvation, you have the witness of the Holy Spirit and through Scripture, and you know that those Scriptures that pertain to salvation, and they talk about believing in Jesus, you say, that's me, and I know that Christ has died, and I know He's given me assurance that He died for my sins, then this is not hard to receive, that He chose you. And it is utterly, it is utterly overwhelming. I won't, I won't give a name, but I heard of someone who read Galatians this week and said, I just want to cry. Because it's not. It's not our works. It's not our righteousness. It's grace. Start to finish. We are chosen. We are called. We are saved. Not because of anything in ourselves, but because of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Well, we have to stop there. I could go into John 17, where all of these things really, really come at us hard and heavy. But I, I hope that in, in this attempt that I have made to, to bring all of these things together, that you understand this. Yes, God chooses people for himself. Yes, God draws some and not others. But he has given us a mandate to proclaim this message to every creature. And everyone who hears it is responsible for it. Faith is a gift. It is also a duty. We must believe in order to be saved. We can't just wait for God to elect us. There is an urgency in this. And that urgency, when, when the Holy Spirit comes, and He says, it's now, then don't, don't fight with Him anymore. Just come. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, for the fact that that you make people, that you make saints, you make believing ones, that you draw them, that you rescue us, that you call us, and we come. I pray that even today, there would be those that are called, that are drawn irresistibly by the voice of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be gracious as we receive these truths from your word. And Lord, never to be mocking your word by, by some prideful gloating that says, Ha, huh, God chose me. I don't know about you, but he's chosen me. Oh Lord, spare us from the, from the shame of thinking that way. Lord, I thank you that you loved the world. You gave your life a ransom for sinners. And Lord, help us never to lose sight of that fact that we are sinners, redeemed and saved by grace. And Lord, to never grow weary of taking that message to others. I pray this in Jesus' name. We're dismissed for lunch, for supper.